Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim In the name of Allah, the most beneficent, the most merciful The Islamic Propagation Office at Rabwa www.islamhouse.com is pleased to present to you this lecture start uh, today's lecture um, this is the last public lecture and uh, the series of lectures that uh, we've had uh, this week and uh, it's titled Muslims in America and the States of Fundamentalism and Terrorism and it will be given by Brother Ali Tamimi and uh, his colleague uh, uh, Chris Palmer uh, they're both from Washington D.C. and uh, they both have studied in the Islamic University in Medina so uh, I'm starting Alhamdulillah. Oh, be very soft. Alhamdulillah. Uh, seeing from the turnout tonight, I hope uh, people didn't just assume it to be a truth that all Muslims are fundamentalists and terrorists and therefore didn't want to attend the uh, lecture. But uh, perhaps because it's Saturday night and most students uh, are either. Maybe let's say stay studying. Um, the lecture uh, uh, which I've been asked to talk about is an important topic to me. Uh, important in the sense that it pains me uh, to see that the religion of Islam uh, being, or Muslims let's say, are smeared as uh, terrorists or fundamentalists in, in the sense that it's often portrayed uh, without any distinction. It also uh, pains me even more when Muslims do acts in the name of the religion of Islam which according to the teachings of the Sharia uh, Islam condemns Islam condemns uh, I would like to uh, before getting into my remarks uh, start off with a brief introduction and as always keep my remarks as uh, brief as possible to allow questions to be asked by the uh, listeners and I think it's always better with through interaction uh, more is usually benefited than for a person just to sit and talk the whole time uh, we have to understand there's a historical context in which uh, that has dealt a great uh, amount of, uh, or leads to a lot of the misconceptions concerning the Islamic religion. Uh, this historical context uh, is resultant concerning the idea that Islam was spread by the sword. And uh, this was one of the uh, misconceptions uh, used in the Middle Ages uh, by uh, European uh, and Christian uh, uh, religious authors uh, in their polemical works against the Islamic religion. One of the arguments which they often uh, use and often mention is that uh, Islam is not a true religion and the evidence is, is that it's been spread by the sword and how could the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, truly be a prophet and at the same time their religion contains things like jihad and so forth. Uh, I find that amazing that they would make that argument when uh, it's very clear that in the Gospels of uh, Matthew uh, it is reported that Jesus the son of Mary said think not that I have come to send peace on earth I have come not to send peace but a sword so even though this very clear statement uh, which is quoted in the Bible uh, the Gospel of, uh, according to St. Matthew uh, upon Jesus uh, Christ that he has said that he has not come to send peace but has come with a sword yet they have overlooked this to accuse the Muslims because there are some Islamic rulings concerning jihad and so forth and to say that this means that Islam is a false religion and the Prophet Muhammad is not truly a prophet sent for Allah because as I said the, all the validity about Islam whether we're talking about the Islamic uh, practices whether we're talking about the Islamic uh, way of dealing with one another concerning the moral code concerning the way uh, Islam uh, looks at women and so forth the only uh, validity to these arguments if we are to accept the, the claim that the Prophet Muhammad was truly sent by Allah for the guidance of mankind if we do not accept that claim then therefore anything which comes from Islam is, is no longer need to investigate so really the discussion or the debate should be concerning the authenticity of the prophethood of the Prophet Muhammad was he truly a prophet sent by Allah for the guidance of all of mankind and that means anything that he said is true or he was not a prophet sent by Allah but a false claimant and then therefore whatever is from the Islamic religion is therefore the value of it is not really uh, of any great uh, amount uh, this historical context has led to certain prejudices the second uh, factor in this historical context 
is what happened in Europe in what is known as the Age of Enlightenment after the Renaissance. Uh, Europe shed the, uh, it, the, uh, what they felt were the, um, the yoke of the oppressive church and they developed an idea or a philosophy that was known as humanism and had a certain political ramification which is called a secularism. Now, since the Islamic world, in, at least it's supposed to be according to Islamic teachings, does not see a difference between religion and practice, and that we have been created to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that this worship of Allah covers all our spheres of life. So this led uh, writers afterwards in the modern time to look at the Islamic world as something which is medieval, something which is backwards, something which is oppressive, and so forth, taking from their experiences that they had in Europe uh, with the Catholic Church, uh, initially, and they had the Protestant Reformation, and then afterwards in the Age of Enlightenment, uh, and so forth. So, with this idea of secularism and the historical conflict uh, between the Islamic world and the Christian world, this has led to perceptions in the West, which is, of course, basically uh, still remains a society which is based upon Christianity or has its roots in Christianity. And therefore, uh, we find in the modern age, there are certain terms which are used to describe Muslims among which is fundamentalist, and also among which is terrorist. However, uh, before I'd like to discuss that, we should understand that how do Muslims look towards disbelievers? I mean, obviously Muslims look at the, the world as two parts, two groups. There are those who adhere to the Islamic faith. They recognize that only Allah is to be worshipped and none other is to be worshipped with him, uh, neither prophet like Jesus Christ or the prophet Muhammad. And they also believe in the finality of the prophet of the prophet Muhammad. And they also recognize that outside of their community are people who adhere to other religions. Whether those religions they believe was originally rooted in revelation, sent by God, but later became corrupted, like Judaism and Christianity, or whether they believe that these religions have no basis uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and were invented by their people, like the various other religions, uh, or uh, what is known as paganistic religions. Uh, Muslims look at disbelievers as four groups, according to the Islamic uh, Sharia. The first group are those who are at war with Muslims. They are in an actual war setting. Uh, you might imagine two countries are fighting, one Muslim and one non-Muslim. These, obviously, the combatants of the people which are fighting the Muslims, and they are known in the books of fiqh as the Harbiyun. Obviously, Muslims do not have any sort of um, uh, kindness towards them because they are combatants in war. But yet, at the same time, we find that Islam has prohibited, in, under all circumstances, taking the life of non-combatants. Non-combatants. If you look at the books of fiqh, uh, the books of Islamic uh, jurisprudence, written in the uh, centuries before that, a question appeared concerning the use of catapults and concerning the use of cannons. You know, initially when the Prophet Muhammad came, the, the weapons of war were somewhat simple, sword and bow and javelin and so forth. Later on, it developed the, the catapult and also the cannon using gunpowder. The Muslim scholars addressing this issue are all in agreement that it's impermissible to use the cannon and the catapult. And the reasoning behind that is because when you lay siege to a city, when you lay siege to a city and you, um, you bombard it with catapults or you bombard it with cannons, it will result in the death of non-combatants. Non-combatants. So therefore, the Muslim army, when laying siege to a country which is at war, it should not use these weapons in those times, which would be what we equate with weapons of mass destruction. Uh, this uh, position shows how Islam has a sanctity of life and only permits the taking of life of those people who are actually engaged in the battlefield. As far as those who are innocent, like uh, women, children, uh, elderly men who are not participating in war, and likewise by the Prophet's definition, also those religious monks and so forth who are usually pacifists and do not uh, engage in war and so forth, the Prophet has forbidden us to take any of these lives uh, under any circumstance. And one time during a battle in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu accidentally the Muslims killed, uh, I, I, they attacked a house and in, the, in the war and some uh, children and women folk died. When the Prophet Sallallahu came across their bodies, he became very enraged and anger and said, Allah has not sent us to kill uh, these uh, innocent people. So therefore, the, the rules of war have been laid very clearly in Islam that does not allow the taking of the innocent's life, even with those parties which you're fighting with. And many uh, researchers into the, the code and the rules of war uh, will write, if you investigate their books, of, like for those students who study law and so forth, will find that uh, many researchers have shown that the modern rules of engagement were actually taken by 
Western civilization from the rules of engagement by the Muslims, by the Muslims uh, during the interaction of the cultures in the Middle Ages. The second category of uh, non-believers uh, are what is known as the Mustaminun. And these are the people who ask to traverse through the Islamic lands, to traverse through the Islamic lands. For instance, they're traders. They're traders. They are people who are visiting, like, uh, delegations. There are people who, um, um, like embassies and so forth, there are people who are just passing through and would like to go from one place of the earth to the other place of the earth and therefore are in transit and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very clearly in the Quran, in a verse, says that if any of them, of the disbelievers, ask you protection, then give them protection. And until he hears the words of Allah and gives him a chance to invite him to Rajah Islam and then take him to where he has asked you to send him with. This is a very clear verse in the Quran. So therefore it's forbidden for Muslims to take the life of diplomatic emb uh, uh, embassies of foreign countries, those traders and people who are passing through their lands, and likewise those people who are in transit en route from one part of the earth to the other part of the earth, and they happen to cut through the Islamic lands. Uh, the Prophet also forbade the killing of ambassadors and of uh, diplomatic missions. The third uh, group are those Muslims, uh, disbelievers, who the Muslims have some sort of treaty with. They are in peace with, and they have some sort of treaty. Here also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that uh, so long as they are true to you, be true to them. I mean, so long as they keep up their end of the treaty, keep up your end of the treaty. Indeed, Allah loves those who are just. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us that the Muslims, uh, Allah loves it from them when they uphold their treaties uh, with the disbelievers. So long as they are upholding their treaty, we are required to uphold our treaty with them. And the fourth, fourth category is what is known as the Zimniyun, and these are disbelievers who live in the lands of the Muslims, and they are allowed to stay upon their religion, and, and in return they pay a tax, which is known as a jizya. So these are the four categories of uh, the disbelievers as according to the Islamic rulings. If you look at that, you can see that what has been done by the Muslims, and we must say this frankly, uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, are actions which go against Islam which go against Islam. And it's very important that the Muslims are first and foremost to attack and reject these actions, among which was the taking of uh, the diplomatic mission, for instance, uh, in Iran uh, 11 or 12 years ago, which probably started the cycle of, uh, or the recent history cycle of calling Muslims uh, terrorists and uh, so forth. Uh, this is forbidden by the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad uh, All diplomatic missions are considered, according to the Sharia, to be from the second category, it means those who are al-musta'minun. They have uh, come under a sort of a agreement that they will have some sort of passage or that they will stay for a short period of time in the Islamic land. And likewise, the killing of tourists, the killing of tourists now, which is currently going on in Egypt. These people enter into the lands of the Muslims, like Egypt, thinking that they're going to come for tourism. Now, whether this is a correct, according to Islam or not, it, it is not uh, an issue here. The issue here is that uh, the fact that they have come under the, um, the, the idea that they will be protected in the Muslim land, they're coming as tourists and therefore, so to take their lives is to breach on our part of that. Uh, likewise, um, those people who are in transit, who are taking airplanes and so forth, that happen to pass through Muslim lands, they are also under the second category, and therefore we are required by the Quranic text to take them from one point to the other point, and therefore bombing up airplanes and so forth is forbidden according to the, to the religion of Islam. And uh, finally, uh, we have, of course, um, uh, another example would be uh, the killing of innocents, you know what I'm saying, whether women and children in any case, whether those countries are at war with the Muslims and there's a declaration of war or not. This is, of course, forbidden under all circumstances. So if we see this, we find that these practices, even though they're done by Muslims, and it's very sad to find that Muslims doing that they're ignorant of their religion and not taking the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad do these acts and therefore smear the religion of Islam. Uh, in no way uh, we're trying to be apologetic, you know what I'm saying, for our beliefs or anything like that. Uh, but however, though, when we find something which our religion forbids, we say clearly that it's forbidden without any ifs, buts, or whens, or anything. And um, this has led to the perception of... Um, perception of Muslims as terrorists, in, also in light of the historical context. The second matter, of course, deals with Muslims living under non-Muslim rule, under non-Muslim rule, like those Muslims who are currently in the United States 
or in Europe or in Australia or anywhere in the world where the country is a non-Muslim country. Here, according to the Sharia, Muslims should not be living amongst the non-Muslims as a general rule. But this is the rule of Sharia, even though some Muslims uh, are lax in upholding this rule, and they live among the disbelievers. And then again, you have some Muslims who are here only on a temporary basis. They're students, uh, they are passing through for medical reasons and so forth. Here, obviously, according to the injunctions of the Sharia, they also have to keep, they have to keep their, their contracts with the uh, disbelievers. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Oh, you who believe, keep your contracts. This means for everybody means for everybody. So any Muslim who, for instance, comes to the United States and uh, does it and does any sort of act of lying or cheating, he is sinful in that. He is sinful in that. If he comes to this country and he uh, comes on a false pretense and stays in the country illegally after he's given his word that he'll only come for a few months and then leave, he is sinful in doing that. Uh, so how much so sinful, more sinful if he does this and then he commits something which takes lives according, which is against the Sharia. And the taking of any innocent life of a disbeliever, the Prophet said, whoever kills the dhimmi, which is the person who is living in a Muslim land under protected status, he will not smell the scent of paradise, even though its scent will be smelled from such and such distance, meaning that he is under great uh, uh, punishment in the Day of Judgment. Uh, this, I hope, sort of clears up the issue of terrorism. So therefore, I mean, Muslims categorically uh, say that what is done by these Muslims is against our religion. It's against our religion. And I remember when I was told by, um, I was called on the phone and told that it seemed that some Muslims were implicated for the World Trade uh, uh, Center bombing and so forth. I was very sad, and I wrote at that time uh, on these two sheets of paper, almost a year ago, I guess, uh, some things which uh, came to my mind at that moment uh, which showed that this was uh, forbidden. The first mention, point I mentioned over here uh, was that, that this act, if Muslims did it, is from the great sins and is part of corruption upon the earth which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden uh, Muslims to engage with. That was the first point, and I mentioned nine other points, which perhaps is not uh, really relevant to our topic. But uh, this shows us that according to the uh, teachings of the Sharia, that this type of uh, behavior engaged uh, by the Muslims is forbidden. It's forbidden. And it's very important that Muslims are, uh, do not have any shyness in telling that, in saying that. You know, we are strict with our religion, we hold firmly to it, but at the same time, if a Muslim does something wrong, we will say that it's wrong without any uh, shyness to it. Uh, the next uh, matter which I'll uh, discuss is concerning the issue of fundamentalism. Uh, the issue of fundamentalism is really results from a concept which is important in Protestant theology, in Protestant theology. And that is that after the uh, Enlightenment, uh, European Enlightenment, uh, it came a debate arose among Protestant uh, circles whether the Bible is considered literal or not. Uh, the words in the Bible, and whether those things mentioned in the Bible, uh, like in the Old Testament and so forth, concerning the creation of man and the flood of Noah and so forth, can they be taken literal, or were they just reflections of the people's ideas during that time? So they divided the uh, Protestant theologians in that time to basically two groups, those who were considered fundamentalists, and those who were not considered fundamentalists, who were considered sort of liberal in their views and so forth. However, if we look at this definition, as it applies uh, to the Muslims, we find that this definition is completely uh, baseless. Because all Muslims believe that the Qur'an is the literal word of God. The literal word of God, that God spoke the Qur'an to, uh, and uh, the angel Gabriel heard the Qur'an, and then uh, transmitted to the Prophet Muhammad, who then proclaimed it to mankind. So Muslims believe that the Qur'an is literal, and likewise they accept the validity of the words and the actions of the Prophet Muhammad. So in that sense, every Muslim is a fundamentalist. Every Muslim is a fundamentalist by definition. So this is a really a misnomer, because it's not applicable. The question of the validity of the text of the Quran is inapplicable to the Muslim. So any Muslim, by definition, by him being Muslim, he's a fundamentalist. So therefore you can see that this misconception that uh, there are certain Muslims who are fundamentalists and therefore uh, somewhat backwards in their view and to portray them in a vulgar manner is really uh, is, uh, uh, a problem dealt with their doubt concerning the validity of their religious books. And this doubt concerning that has forced them this uh, uh, bias that they have uh, and this scholarly context in their relation to their religion and they have now uh, reflected that and push that onto the Islamic religion. And this is a great uh, misconception. So really the issue of fundamentalism and not fundamentalism is not really an issue 
uh, to be discussed because in actuality every Muslim is a fundamentalist in the sense that he believes that the Quran is the literal word of God then this is just a condition of faith without concept, without difference now uh, if the question of fundamentalist means fundamentalism means uh, concerning how the Muslims uh, or certain Muslims deal uh, in the world and so forth as opposed to other Muslims uh, being modernists and so forth we find that those Muslims who are considered fundamentalists really uh, do not differ very much in what would be considered uh, to be uh, proper behavior and so forth uh, for instance the Algerians uh, who were considered fundamentalists they try to change their society through elections and through what is considered a democratic process irrespective of that is that is permissible in the Sharia or not yet no one cared to mention uh, that fact and no one felt any uproar when a military regime then took the result of the election and suppressed and engaged those people into a lot of torture and until now uh, however though there is an emphasis upon those people who very few people really who do acts which are outside of the religion of Islam according to the teachings of Islam and engage in activities which I, I mentioned uh, previously uh, which goes against the Sharia so uh, in brief uh, we may say that a lot of this uh, misconceptions concerning Islam has a historical context and this is a historical context concerning the nature of the Islamic religion and this historical context was then amplified uh, after uh, the Enlightenment in Europe and they took, uh, adopted humanism as a philosophy and also secularism as a way of government so they start to portray uh, with, in this light they start to look at the Islamic world and this prejudice uh, was compounded by Muslims who seek uh, the guidance sometimes more often the guidance of Marx than the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu in uh, in affecting political change in their country and therefore they engage in activities which the Sharia is very clear you know, it's not just an interpretation of some uh, Muslims, uh, scholars, for instance. It's very clear uh, concerning these texts in the Quran that forbids the taking of life in these uh, uh, situations. And uh, with that, I think I'll close my remarks. Uh, and, well, maybe uh, Brother Reese, if he wants to add something, or we can take questions, perhaps. Uh, huh? Questions? Thank the speaker for this uh, lecture, short lecture. And uh, uh, he would he he likes uh, well, I both like to take more questions as I said. Uh, sometimes things are uh, more interesting in uh, question answer dialogue. So we have uh, more than half an hour in which we can take questions for uh, both of them. So if anyone has a question, they can raise their hand and uh, try to answer. Right. I mentioned uh, yesterday um, and uh, today that um, the Islamic Sharia, the Islamic law, is based on six major principles. The second of which is the sanctity of life. And for this reason, it's forbidden to take life except in uh, well defined cases. Uh, one is murder when somebody's to murder somebody and here again the uh, is permitted in this case for the family of the one who's murdered their beloved or so forth that they can uh, forgive the its murder if they do not want to take his life uh, instead who has committed the murder and likewise the second case is due to uh, uh, the committing of sex while somebody is married he has an extramarital affair or something like that and this is to prevent uh, the um, the destruction of the family and so forth. Here, stoning is uh, a means of um, of stopping that, uh, provided there are witnesses to the event actually taking place. Four witnesses have to actually see the act taking place. And the third case is for apostasy, for a Muslim to forsake his religion and to take a religion outside of that. And that deals basically with the taking of life within the Islamic community. Now, as far as outside of the Islamic community, uh, I mentioned in the first part that the Muslims uh, look to uh, the non-Muslims as four groups. The first group would be those who are combatants actually engaged in war with uh, the Muslims. In that case, it's only permissible to take the life of those combatants. And I mentioned a uh, historical precedent that uh, with the, uh, the invention of the canon in the Middle Ages and the catapult, uh, the Muslim scholars debated the issue of whether it was permissible for Muslim armies to use these weapons uh, when sieges were being laid to cities and so forth in wartime. And the consensus of the Muslim scholars that this was forbidden because that these weapons would result in the death of the non-combatants in these cities uh, through the use of catapults and uh, 
uh, cannons and so forth, and by extension, uh, weapons of mass destruction in our time, which would kill uh, both innocent and non-innocent. Uh, the other two, ca- the other three categories of non-Muslims are those who are uh, they have some sort of um, they're passing through an Islamic land, like they're traveling or they're a diplomatic embassy, or uh, they are there for trade or so forth, or they're in transit. It is forbidden to uh, uh, to take their lives. Rather, we're commanded in the Quran to assist them in reaching their final destination, whatever that must be. And for the diplomatic uh, embassies, the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, uh, forbade specifically uh, taking the life of any ambassador for any diplomatic embassy. And the other uh, two categories would be those um, non-Muslims who the Muslims have a treaty with, you know, like between two countries, like the Muslim country and non Here in the Quran, we're said that so long as they are true to you in keeping up their contracts, be true to them. So here we are forbidden to break our contracts so long as they do not break uh, their contracts, their treaty. And the fourth category would be those non-Muslims who live in a Muslim land, who might be a, a minority and so forth. And here the Prophet Muhammad said that whoever takes the life of a non-Muslim who is living in a Muslim land, which are known as protected people, or Zimnis in the Arabic uh, language, he will not come to the center of paradise. He will not ever come across the center of paradise. Meaning that this is something forbidden in our religion. So uh, the only time which is permitted to take the life of a non-Muslim is only for those armies which are engaged in war and only for the combatants on the battlefield. In other cases, it's completely forbidden. So what's done by these, uh, by Muslims and so forth, goes against the teachings of their religion in that case. Uh, I'm going to hear you, I'm sorry. I'm going to hear you, I'm sorry. I'm going to give you an example that uh, this is a this is a question now which is um, uh, concerning the taking of life within Muslim countries uh, according to the precepts of the religion of Islam it is impermissible to have uh, governments which rule by a law outside of uh, God's law, the Sharia, like secular law and so forth. And uh, as a result of the uh, influences and the conquest of Muslim lands uh, in the last two centuries uh, by European powers and so forth, the colonialists, uh, they left the legacy of having secular laws. Now, so some Muslims are, have attempted to remove these uh, secular laws and these rulers through, um, through by force of arms, by force of arms. The problem with this approach is that in a, uh, without doubt that usually what happens is that they end up killing lives of innocence, lives of innocence. Like for instance, like now in Algeria, okay, I came across when I was in England this summer uh, some Algerian men who felt that what was going on in Algeria was a jihad. And one of the matters that they discussed was taking the lives of the policemen and the army members. And they felt that it was permitted to take the lives of these policemen and these army members. While according to the Sharia, uh, these people are not necessarily, uh, especially in a country like Algeria, which is a military and an oppressive regime, a lot of people are forced conscripts into the army. I mean, they have no choice. So just to say that a person, just because he's in the army, that he necessarily is uh, trying to uh, force the, implement, uh, the, the oppression of the Sharia or the oppression and the torture of Muslims in the country is not a valid statement. You see what I'm saying? Because with forced conscription into these armies, a lot of these people uh, really have no choice in the situation. They have they have the alternative of either um, either you know um, uh, joining these armies and these police forces, or they will be tortured and sometimes executed and so forth. So what is unfortunately what happens when they when they try to do this, and also it's also being engaged in Egypt now, when they uh, come will be a few and they're trying to topple these governments, and they end up. Uh, shooting, you know, I'm saying innocents, and sometimes innocent Muslims die. Uh, this shedding of the blood is an impermissible act, even though that it is true that these governments need to be removed according to the Sharia because they are secular governments, and therefore it is not permissible permissible for Muslims to be ruled uh, by a secular regime. Any more? Yes. Yeah. Right. Um, well, jihad is uh, a broad term in Arabic, and it reads, literally means to exert, um, according to the Arabic language, means to exert some effort, to exert effort. 
However, though, in uh, the use of the Sharia, it means to fight the disbelievers. As I mentioned uh, in my previous two lectures, that the Islamic religion has come, uh, and it believes that it is the only true religion, and the other religions are either religions which were based in Revelation and became corrupted uh, due to the uh, people forsaking the text of their books and changing it, or religions that do not have uh, any basis uh, from God. And Muslims believe that Allah created them to worship and that this is for the salvation and the guidance in this world. So jihad has been instituted, has been instituted to permit the spread of Islam uh, through the world, not the forced conversion of non-Muslims. I mean, there's a big difference. Uh, if a country does not allow, according to Islamic law, does not allow uh, Muslims to come to them and preach Islam in that country, they prevent uh, uh, Muslims to preach Islam, then jihad is uh, instituted to allow uh, Muslims to come and preach uh, in, in that country. Uh, now, the other type of jihad is, of course, when Muslims are attacked, when a non-Muslim country attacks a Muslim, and then this is the case of self-defense. So this, in brief, is the, uh, the meaning of jihad. Yes, Uh, excuse me? No, the, the means would be, I mean, obviously, if you're attacked in the second case, uh, you would use whatever strength you can muster to repel the attack of the, of the invader. I mean, that's without, uh, uh, without doubt. In terms of the other means is that if a, a non-Muslim country does not permit uh, the Muslims to uh, openly engage in calling people to religion Islam, then the Muslims are required, in this case, to... Uh, to fight that country with whatever means they have to allow for the uh, spread of Islam, uh, the preaching of Islam, not the forced conversion of non-Muslims, but the preaching of Islam in that country, by whatever means uh, is possible. Right. Yes, there it is like that. The first thing is that they are offered a chance to enter into this religion of Islam and they are given the chance to, uh, to uh, listen to uh, Islam and to argue and to debate and so forth. But it's only when they prevent uh, their peoples from listening to the message of Islam, you know, in that case. These rules are in the Qur'an and they're also expounded upon in the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and so forth. Uh, you know, and I know this might seem strange uh, to non-Muslims, but you know, the Muslims, the way they they view it, they believe they view it that uh, Islam is the only uh, way for mankind salvation in this world and the hereafter, and therefore uh, anything which prevents people from listening to this message is is harmful to them. And you know, you might look at it also in a sense, in a, another sense, uh, with uh, democracy and communism. You know. Uh, before during the Cold War, I mean, the United States government would engage in whatever means it could to m allow, you know, democratic, uh, um, you know, uh, ideas be uh, passed into those worlds. Whether they would do it through a radio broadcast, whether they would do that through uh, sometimes uh, wars and you know assassinations and so forth. Islam doesn't allow uh, that type of thing, like assassinations and um, subversive means and so forth. It has to do it openly, in the sense that people are given the opportunity to come to the religion of Islam, and if uh, they would like to, uh, that's fine. If they don't want to like it, then allows at least give us the opportunity to preach to Islam in those nations. And only then, if, is, if a person is forbidden to do that, or prohibited, uh, then it's not, uh, then war is engaged. Right. The uh, I mean, whatever means that can be done to remove to remove a secular government. The problem is, is that when these Muslims try to oust that government, invariably they take life of people who are not necessarily trying to push the secular thing. And this is the problem of revolution. That the revolution will come and it kills people who are both innocent, who do not necessarily uh, accept the secular regime, but have to be by force of circumstance in a certain situation, and also uh, by um, uh, those people who, for instance, are actually fighting in Islam and torturing Muslims and putting them in jail and so forth and killing them and so forth. So this is a right, and so that's why usually uh, these means is not. If you look at the way the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, sorry, when he was in a country in a in a people who was not Muslim, you know, what I'm saying in Mecca, he did not permit the Muslims and Allah and the Quran forbade the Muslims 
to, uh, while they were living amongst non-Muslims, to start fighting them in that case. Only when they had their own country and so forth, uh, then this was permitted. So uh, this is why that most often these revolutions and so forth is against the guidance of Islam. And as I mentioned, most of these people, most of these people take take their uh, take their guidance from the teachings of uh, Mao and Marx and so forth. These are really the ones who set the uh, the precedents for them. Then the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad SAW. There is no really evidence to allow these type of revolutions and so forth. That you know where people you know come into uh, an open area and they start, you know, putting bombs and shooting people and innocents and non-innocents die. I mean, this smears the message of Islam more than it, uh, helps them establish an Islamic state. And that's why they've been engaging in these activities for maybe a quarter of a century or more and no Islamic state has been established. No Islamic state has been established. And I don't think they'll ever establish an Islamic state like that. Islam is a religion. Islam is a religion which people have to accept on their own, uh, cognizance. If they believe in the message, they accept it. If they believe in the message, they accept it. And only then will Islam be rooted in the people. If people do not want to believe in Islam, then you cannot really, you know, force them by force of arms. This goes against the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad SAW. This, with, so nobody misunderstands me, that uh, obviously that these secular regimes have to be removed because it's forbidden in any case for Muslims to live under a non-Muslim law. So, I mean, you have to temper both. It's the means that I'm talking about and not the aim that's in question. Well, you know, I mean, perhaps in most, most of the Muslims probably support, you know, secular. Most, unfortunately, most of the Muslims, you know, do not see any harm in having a secular regime. If you ask most Muslims now, they do not find really any shame in that or any wrong in that. And this is a confusion, you see what I'm saying? It's not a, you have to understand that governments do not exist. Yes, these governments are oppressive and they're dictatorships and so forth, and they've been propped up sometimes by foreign powers. But obviously they have some sort of base in their society. Because if it was just five or six people, as it might be imagined, or ten people, or a hundred people, or two hundred people, there would be no way if the will of the people, you know what I'm saying, was to have an Islamic government for these regimes to exist. But because there is confusion amongst the Muslims themselves, amongst the Muslims themselves, many Muslims do not, does not, do not understand uh, or do not feel that it's wrong against the teachings of the religions to have a secular regime. They consider this to be fine, you see what I'm saying. So therefore they find no harm or shame in that whatsoever, and therefore they will defend uh, their regimes or so forth. A lot of times Muslims are unaware of the goals of those groups and so forth, and they consider them their criminals and so forth, so they will then therefore stop them because they fear the evil that these people might spread if they were to take power and so forth. So one cannot just assume um, that uh, all the soldiers and all the police force and all the government bureaucrats and so forth are all, you know, people who are fighting and oppressing Islam. And no way. That's, that would be a very unfair judgment to pass. I mean, I agree with you in principle that, you know, that they, that they are tools of oppression and so forth. But are you certain now that every single policeman and every single soldier, it is clear in his mind the obligation of establishing an Islamic state which rules by the Sharia, that the issue is so clear to him that he, out of willing, willfulness, is choosing to support a regime of oppressiveness? All of them are that thing? No, I'm saying. So they pay by their blood. You should. No. That's what I'm trying to say. No. So I'm trying to say that this type of philosophy, you know, what I'm saying, while it might be popular in some Islamic circles, has no precedence in the Quran and Sunnah. I mean, we Muslims are called to adhere to the Quran and Sunnah. You would agree with me, right? What evidence do we find in the Book of Allah or in the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad which says that because people uh, have a certain position vis-a-vis -vis concerning things, that therefore their blood is to be spilled? Right. I, I, we have tried the democratic way, we have gone to the polls, right. we won it. I mean, 
I mean, if you think that this is not jihad, or this you can prove that this is not jihad, and again, the arms are only doing that it's jihad, and Right. Well, first of all, I wouldn't suggest by the democratic process, because democratic process is the same uh, un-Islamic method, you know what I'm saying, which uh, these people have. When these are oppressive, and demo- de- democracy, according to in their understanding, which allows uh, for any sort of system, you know, whether based in Allah's uh, law or not, is also against the religion of Islam. The point is, is what I'm trying to say, is that the rulers, in, for the most part, are a reflection of their society are a reflection of their society. And that for a large masses of Muslims in those societies, they do not, it is not clear to them, as it might be clear to you or to me, that this uh, position and so forth is un-Islamic. And therefore, and it goes against the teachings of the religion, and therefore, to assume by that, that because that they have taken a certain stance, that their blood becomes then uh, valuable to spill, to be spilt and so forth, goes against the teachings of Islam. A man is held responsible according to the Islamic teachings only when he takes a decision based upon knowledge. And he then is given the, the choice of saying, well, this is how the teachings of Islam is, and this is not against the teachings of Islam. And then he voluntarily chooses one way. To assume that after uh, a country like Algeria, which faced over a hundred years of French occupation, and then faced a period after colonialism, where the teachings and so forth in the schools and so forth, the people have forgotten their original language, most people just speak French and so forth, people no longer understand the teachings of the religion of Islam, just to assume that they're all now have become uh, disbelievers or so forth, or that they are, their blood is able to be shed, goes against the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa you know, and this is this is the this is the point. I mean, we are required as Muslims to obey Allah and to obey the Prophet Muhammad And these situations, of course, have resulted just because of the carelessness and and the sinfulness of the Muslims. That Allah has punished us with these military regimes and these crooks and criminals and gangsters like Qadhafi and you know Saddam Hussein of Iraq and Mubarak and the rest. This is uh, this is the result. But what I'm trying to say is that the people in those societies now, the people who go to work every morning, the people who who are in the army, the people who are in the streets, most of them, most of them, you know, do not see anything wrong with that. And that is why they support, for instance, the country where uh, my parents come from, from Iraq. Most of those, you know, people, when you see them on CNN, jumping up and holding the pictures of Salam Hussein, yeah, some of them are there because they fear, they fear that... Uh, they fear that if they don't, you know, participate in these things, that some sort of harm will come to them. But you must imagine also that many of them also do not find anything wrong with them. You know what I'm saying? And they think that, you know, his, uh, what he's saying and so forth, that he's a hero and so forth. So then to say, to hold them all responsible for his criminal actions, and then say, okay, let's go kill them all, you know, is not according to the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad Thank you. Yeah, um, I agree with you. Right. In the same way, the Prophet Muhammad established an Islamic state. You know what I'm saying? He was in Mecca for the first 13 years of his life, and he was persecuted. He was tortured. His uh, 13 years of his message, excuse me, not of his life, and he was uh, tortured. And his companions were tortured, and some of them had to flee to Ethiopia. You know, and he used to present himself to the different tribes of the Arabs and saying that, look, who is willing to protect me so that I may spread the message which Allah, God, has in charge entrusted me with? Now, therefore, then all of a sudden, after one time, one tribe in Arabia, in Medina, accepted that and were willing to give him shelter and his people to allow him to spread Islam. What I'm trying to say now that if you go to the Muslim countries, if you go to Indonesia, if you go to Malaysia, if you go to Pakistan, if you go to Egypt, most of the Muslims are ignorant of what is Islam, the Islamic teachings. They engage things which go against the teachings of Islam. And most of the Muslims, most of the Muslims, you know what I'm saying, are unwilling and they're uncommitted to lay down their lives, to lay down their lives for uh, an Islamic state. And that's why that even though the Algerians, for instance, had millions of people who were supportive in elections, when the army sent its soldiers, you know, into the streets, everybody stayed home and locked their doors. Because they were not committed to this principle to the full. You might have some, you know, committed youth, you know, a few handful or thousands here and there who are willing to lay down their lives. But they end up killing their fellow uh, Muslims, you know what I'm saying, and they cannot change anything. 
you know, they killed Anwar Sadat in 1981 or 1982, you know what I'm saying? And the government of Egypt state, same repressive government, same, maybe even worse, might somebody say, same sort of torture and something. Nothing was changed, you know. And therefore, this type of uh, teachings, you know, really ha resulted from the Muslims being influenced and the Muslims uh, uh, being enamored by the teachings of revolutionaries that came against the colonials, like Mao and so forth who teachings are antithetical to Islam. These people were communists and so forth and so on. And the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad was a teaching which came to guide mankind and not to shed blood left and right. Yes, in Islam, we, uh, are, we engage in jihad. And yes, in Islam, if people are murderers and people commit crimes, we will execute them, we punish them very severely, right? But at the same time, the message of Islam is the message for the guidance of mankind and not for the whole slail destruction, you know what I'm saying, of communities and killing of people. This is antithetical to the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. No, I'm not suggesting the Prophet I'm saying, I'm suggesting first, you know what I'm saying, make sure that the Muslims in your area, you know what I'm saying, are fully committed to the Islamic religion. Okay? And when you find that to be the case, you know what I'm saying, then you can then uh, approach, even, you know, from the books of Phil, even from the books of Phil. While they have said, uh, without doubt, they have said in the books of the Sharia, uh, without doubt, that if the ruler is a non-Muslim ruler, it is required for the Muslims to remove him by force. They have put a condition to this, that it is able, the Muslims are able to remove him, are able to remove him. That if the ruler is uh, unable to be removed by force, then it's forbidden, because the bloodshed which will occur to the general public is uh, greater and so forth. And if you look what happened in Syria when they revolted against that dictatorial regime in 1980 and so forth, a few thousand Muslims tried to revolt against them. And this man is a tyrant, he's a murderer, he's a terrorist, he's a drug runner. Somebody killed him for this criminal, okay? He's a scourge, not to the Muslims, but a scourge to mankind as a whole. However, though, when those uh, 2,000 people or so tried to revolt against him, what did he do? He took his tanks, he took his airplanes, and so forth, and he leveled the whole city. He leveled the whole city resulting in the death of 20, 30, 40,000 Muslims. Are we now to say that that action would brought a greater good? Did they change anything in the long run? No, of course not. All they did was that that type of misplaced zeal resulted in the death of innocent Muslims. Innocent Muslims. And these are, you know, hard, cold facts that a lot of times people don't want to face because it's really easy, you know what I'm saying, to use sloganism and so forth, you know but to actually affect change in society and people uh, takes not only wisdom, but takes patience, you know what I'm saying, and takes adherence to the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Is there a difference between the Yes, of course. I mean, obviously, if somebody was now to, I mean, whether in Algeria or elsewhere, somebody you're sitting now in the mosque, for instance, or you're sitting at home, you know what I'm saying, and somebody breaks down the door and wants to shoot you, you know what I'm saying, you have to defend yourself with whatever it means that it's, you know, possible. But the question is, with the, with the question which was posed to me in England uh, this summer, was the killing of the soldiers and the killing of the police force, where they said it was permissible for them to go and they see some soldiers, you know, milling around in some public square, and them to go and just to open fire upon them, and, you know, kill them and run away. Is this permissible? You know, and they try to use weak arguments from the Sharia. This is, this is the point made. The question is that, that these rulers need to be removed. This is without doubt that they need to be removed. I mean, they are, you know, they are, as a clique, you know what I'm saying, of, of, of criminals, basically, you know what I'm saying? And by any standard, whether Muslim or non-Muslim standard, you know, they are a bunch of just of gangsters. But the question is, is that, does one allow him to do that, you know what I'm saying? To use a force of arms, you know what I'm saying, which results in the shedding of blood of people who are either confused concerning the issue or people who are, by, by force of circumstance, uh, taken a position. This, I'm saying, according to the teachings of Islam, of the Prophet Muhammad as revealed to the Prophet Muhammad is impermissible. And, the evidence is right clear. I mean, we can, you know, sit and, you know, and discuss the issues one by one and so forth and look at the books of the scholars. And, I mean, there's no doubt for it. I mean, I'm willing to discuss the issue as long as uh, it's wanted to. You know. Yes. Well, 
are in fact in the whole religion they do nothing. Right. And they direct them to kill those people. Right. So uh, to defend yourself you have to kill those soldiers who in fact are innocent. This is a different issue. I mean, for instance, if somebody came with a gun pointed towards you, his gun barrel to shoot you, you know what I'm saying, and you want to defend yourself, that's one thing. But this is not the uh, hi this is not the hypothesis which has been placed to us. As you mentioned, these ignorant villagers who are illiterate, who are forced conscripts into the army, and they are told to uh, occupy a central square. You know what I'm saying, and make checks that any car to pass to look inside, make sure there are no weapons. You know what I'm saying, and then to say, well, look, since they're the army of a dictatorial regime, then therefore we're permitted in that case uh, to shoot them because we're going to, you know, whistle down his power base and so forth. Is this is this permissible for so forth? This is what I'm saying is not from the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad So in this case, you know what I'm saying, because these people are innocent for most parts. Most of them do not know. You know what I'm saying and so forth. The question is different if you're saying, well, somebody has come now into this room, for instance, you know what I'm saying, with a gun, you know what I'm saying, and he wants to shoot uh, somebody. In that case, you have to defend yourself, without doubt. This is not the issue. But the issue here is concerning those forced conscripts who are basically illiterate peasants and so forth, and who are told to occupy a building or a square or a street, you know, that to assume that their position means that they are taking a, uh, a position that they want to uh, fight Islam or kill Muslims and so forth, this is a, an assumption which I think is invalid and goes against the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad Right. 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 When the Prophet Muhammad and his companions were being tortured in Mecca, you see what I'm saying, and people would pelt them with stones, and those of them who were not free men and were slaves would be tortured and so forth. Did the Prophet Muhammad tell the people, said, okay, you know, if one of these disbelievers, pagans, comes, you know what I'm saying, and tries to grab you, make sure that you take a rock and hit him on the head, or take a sword and kill him? No, the order in the Quran came to hold your hands back, to hold your hands back. And this shows that the wisdom in Islam is that when war is engaged, it has to be clear. It has to be clear that, you know, a war, a declaration of war comes, and the battle sides are taken. Those say, we have that in choice. They said, we've decided to take, you know, this position. And uh, others have said, you know, we're on this army and so forth. And likewise, I said, uh, this also brings me to the point concerning the engaging of the disbelievers in war. You see what I'm saying? You cannot say, for instance, that because a certain country of the disbelievers has a certain policy towards the Muslims, right? That therefore, by extension, every single person in that country among the disbelievers, therefore, is uh, his blood is uh, lawful to be shed. I mean, for instance, let's say now that the uh, the Muslims were to say that the the government of the United Kingdom has a policy which is against the Muslims in Bosnia, right? Which is leading to the massacre of the Muslims. This does not mean by extension that every Englishman, every Englishman, is supporting that policy, and every Englishman is a combatant against the Islamic religion. So therefore, you can walk into the streets of London and you see any Englishman, you can get hold of and kill him. This is criminal behavior. This is not the teachings of Islam. But if there was a war, for instance, you know what I'm saying, and there was a declaration of war, and armies were mobilized, and people met at a battlefield at a certain time and place, then all combatants, you know what I'm saying, that's the rules of war. So one has to distinguish between that, you know what I'm saying, and be to, to distinguish when people, you know, trying to use means, you know what I'm saying, not permitted by the religion of Islam, even though the aid in itself uh, might be considered, uh, you know, I mean, noble or whatever. Right. Or, or also, even if they, even if they kill Muslim scholars and so forth, do you not, do not feel that those Muslim scholars whose lives have been laid down and so forth, and who have been uh, killed, you know, for no reason, because just because they have told the people to uh, lead a certain lifestyle and they have been taken and hung and so forth, do you think that that their death has not affected affected the minds of the people? and made the people want to uh, say, well, what is this message that they're calling to? Obviously. You see. Right, but this is an indication of weakness of faith. It's an indication of the weakness of faith and the, un the unwillingness to sacrifice for the Islamic religion. You see what I'm saying? Right. 
Okay, let me ask you a question. Okay, that commentator, that commentator in the news, that commentator in the news, who says something saying that those people who did such and such an act are criminals and terrorists and so forth and so on, uh, falsely accuse certain people, okay? Anybody who has a beard, for instance, who walks in the streets of Cairo, okay? Does that mean, does that mean that that commentator himself, you know what I'm saying, has, you know what I'm saying, has, has given up his allegiance to Islam? Or is it possible that also he might have confusion in his mind concerning the reality of the issue? He might be confused. This is my point. So if he's confused, wouldn't it be first to educate him first? And then see his position. And then see his position before you go and just assume, well, he's a commentator, he's a journalist, and therefore his blood is, you know, for me to, to, uh, to shed. That's, that's the position I'm trying to, to express. That the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad indicates to the other course than the course which is taken by people. Yes? Don't ask you a question. Okay, I guess that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's an, an argument. Let me ask you a question and to, and see how you'd respond to this. In my first lecture here that I was asked to give was concerning the message of Islam. And I mentioned that the message of Islam is built the Islamic monotheism that only worship is to be given to Allah alone and no worship is to be directed to any other human being, whether the Prophet Muhammad, whether Jesus, the son of Mary, or any human being. Now, uh, what country are you originally from, may I ask? India. India. Uh, do you not see the Muslims venerate the graves of the uh, dead people and so forth and give acts of worship to the dead which make them resemble more the Christians than the Muslims in that act? Do you find that in India or not? Huh? So if this is the root of the Islamic, uh, this is the root of the Islamic religion and Muslims are confused concerning that and give worship which they, as by being a Muslim, they should only give it to the creator of the heavens and the earth and not to another man. And here they venerate and they preach dead men in their graves and so forth, saints and so forth. And then you're going to tell me that we're not confused about Islam? I don't know of any greater confusion about Islam than that matter. I'd like to, uh, in conclusion, you know, thank uh, the MSA and the uh, student body here at Purdue University for uh, cordially inviting uh, uh, me to come and uh, spend these last uh, three days with you. I hope that, uh, you know, that the discussion of ideas that we have presented in these lectures have been useful and beneficial. Obviously, I mean, everybody's uh, allowed to uh, think what he wants, and that there's no harm in that. But I think it's important that you discuss these issues in a manner of, uh, uh, which uh, a uh, scholarly discussion, you know what I'm saying, and not an emotional discussion, uh, will pro provide benefit for everybody. And uh, thank you for your invitation. So, kind of, we thank the speaker for uh, uh, the effort he's put in the past three days in the three lectures that he's given. And uh, we thank uh, the audience for attending. And uh, we hope uh, that this Islamic Awareness Week. Uh, was uh, beneficial to both uh, Muslims and non-Muslims, <laughs> and uh, uh, we'll like, inshallah, next year to, to do it again and see uh, that again. Yeah, don't worry, I won't In conclusion, we ask Allah that He brings you benefit through this lecture. For more information, you may contact us through the following address. The Islamic Propagation Office, Rabwa, 
P.O. Box 29465 Riyadh 114-57 Saudi Arabia Phone 445-4900 Also 4970126 If you would like to listen to more beneficial lectures feel free to visit our website at www.islamhouse.com Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh